Hello, my rebels. Today, I try and make sense of the Wet'suwet'en agreement, draft, proposal, arrangement, tentative, deal. I've heard it described five different ways, and I don't know what it means other than there's no there there. I'll take you through what we know today, and I'll give you just an amazing clip from Carolyn Bennett. You got to listen to this one. Hey, before I show you that, do me a favor and go to rebelnews.com and become a subscriber of Rebel News Plus. That means you get the video version of this podcast and two other shows by my friends Sheila Gunn-Reed and David Menzies. So that's at rebelnews.com. All right, here's the podcast. Tonight, did the Liberals really make a deal to settle the national railway blockades? It's March 2nd, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Last night, I saw this breathless press release published by Trudeau's CBC State Broadcaster. I think it's a press release. I don't think it's a news report. There really isn't any dividing line anymore between the Trudeau liberals and the Trudeau CBC. Don't take it from me. Even YouTube now has a disclaimer at the bottom of every CBC YouTube video online indicating that it's paid for by the government. It's a kind of propaganda. They do that for Al Jazeera, too. Anyways, um, here's the tweet. With two attained chiefs, federal and BC ministers reach a proposed arrangement in pipeline dispute. They reach a proposed arrangement. That's a weird choice of words, isn't it? I think normal words sound like reach an arrangement, but even that's weird. Reach an agreement. That, that's more English. Uh, an, an agreement is a deal, right? It's, it's a contract, an exchange of promises. I agree to sell you a loaf of bread and you agree to pay me $3. That's an agreement, a contract, a deal. What's a proposed arrangement? I don't quite know, but the CBC said it. If you click on the link on that tweet, you get this story, which isn't really any clearer, is it? Would Suatame Chiefs ministers reach tentative arrangement over land title, but debate over pipeline continues. So now we have uh, the word tentative instead of proposed, and now they're saying the pipeline part is not agreed to. Hang on, the tweet said the proposed arrangement, whatever that is, was about the pipeline dispute. Those pipeline disputes, those are the only words that have clear meaning here, pipeline dispute. And, And then right there in the story, They say it doesn't cover the pipeline dispute. The debate over the pipeline continues. What what are they trying to do? Let me read some of this story. Wet'suwet'en hereditary leader says they remain opposed to the coastal gas link pipeline. Oh, so so there isn't a deal or an agreement or, or an arrangement or certainly not a contract or a treaty. So what is it exactly? What's the news? A Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief and senior government officials say they have reached a proposed arrangement to acknowledge land title rights established more than 20 years ago in a Supreme Court decision. What? What? I thought we were talking about pipeline here. 
Okay, well, maybe the agreement speaks for itself, as they say. As in, if you can't describe something, maybe just look at it. Uh, I mean, if an agreement would be made of words, just, just look at what the words say in the agreement. Yeah, about that, um, Federal Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett and British Columbia Indigenous Relations Minister Scott Fraser would not give details on the proposed arrangement, saying it first has to be reviewed by the Wet'suwet'en people. Oh, okay, so it's a secret deal, but it isn't a deal, but it's secret, and it would be reviewed by the Wet'suwet'en people. But hang on, the Wet'suwet'en people have already agreed to the pipeline, uh, 20 out of 20 First Nation bands along the route, that's all of them. Some of them even had referendums. They, they have a deal, a contract. You can read it. It's in plain English. Uh, you need a contract before you build a $20 billion. Actually, uh, I learned today it's much bigger than that, all included. The pipeline part alone uh, is about $6 billion. That's the part that these bands are most interested in. Here's a video. I'm trying to make sense of this. So here's a video of that Indian Affairs Minister who happens to come from Toronto, Carolyn Bennett, I'm sure she's a very nice lady, but she knows about as much about Indian affairs as Seamus O'Regan, Trudeau's clownish energy minister, knows about oil and gas. Try and riddle me this. We, I believe, have uh, come uh, to a uh, proposed arrangement uh, that, uh, that will uh, also honor the, the protocols of the, yeah, of the Wasotan um, people and clans, and uh, obviously that that what we've worked on this weekend needs to go back to those clans, and then uh, we have we have uh, agreed that as ministers we will come back to sign um, in uh, if if it it meet, is agreed upon um, by by the nation. What did you understand any of that? I think at one point she was trying to say the words with Suetan. That's a really hard word to say. I don't blame her for having trouble pronouncing that word. It's the other parts that are embarrassing, though. I don't think she knows anything about anything. I don't think she has anything to say. But she felt like saying it anyways. And the Trudeau CBC felt like reporting it because they're in deep on this with Trudeau. The CBC has been the chief cheerleaders of these blockades. They, they love it for some reason. Here's more from that weird CBC story yesterday. Bennett said the proposed arrangement will honor the protocols of the Wet'suwet'en people and clans. What? Lawyer Peter Grant, who represented the Wet'suwet'en in neighboring Gitsand First Nation, said the proposal is not a treaty. It's a draft arrangement. But I think it's very powerful, he said. Now, hang on, I don't think I made it clear enough, so let me say it again. The Wet'suwet'en First Nation, uh, those Indian bands were not at this meeting with these cabinet ministers. The guy who they were negotiating with, his name is Frank Alec. He's just some guy. He's calling himself Chief Woos, but he's not a chief. A chief is defined in the Indian Act. It's defined in law. It's like a mayor of an Indian band, really. They're elected in Canada. Like I say, all 20 out of 20... Um, bands along the way, the chiefs and the councils, those are the First Nations. They're all on board. That would be like saying a town mayor and an alderman are, are on board. Bennett didn't meet with any of them. 
So this lawyer guy they're quoting, Peter Grant, I don't quite know who he's representing here. And I'm not even sure what he's saying other than there's a draft agreement. But that means it's not agreed to yet if it's just a draft. There was one guy in the negotiations, though, who seemed pretty sure that there was no agreement, actually, at least on the thing everyone's talking about, uh, the pipeline blockades. Here's Scott Fraser, uh, the British Columbia cabinet minister who was at the meetings. He said, Fraser said the tentative land and title arrangement would not be retroactive on the pipeline issue, and the parties remained in disagreement about how to move forward. The project that's been in place, it has been permitted, and it's underway, he said. It's underway. Isn't, isn't it something that an NDP cabinet minister from BC, in a coalition with the Green Party out there, is more dedicated to having this pipeline proceed than a liberal cabinet minister from Ontario? But of course. Oh, and here's the press release put out by Coastal GasLink, the pipeline company itself. Coastal GasLink will resume construction activities in the Morris River area on Monday, March 2, that's today, following the four-day pause to allow for constructive dialogue between the parties. But look at all the fake headlines today. Milestone deal. But is there a deal? That's the front page of the Globe and Mail. And every other newspaper and TV station parroted the lie. Why? I, I don't just get it. Some said the word proposed or draft, but some said there was a deal. Here's a tweet uh, from Global News, which wins some sort of pride. Look at this. This is a reporter for Global. I'm amazed at the vitriol and sarcasm in the comments on this historic story. There is no payout, no checks being signed. It's about respect, recognition, and reconciliation. No money was sought, and it was never the point. Smarten up! <laughs> No money was sought. Do you believe that? It was never the point. Do you believe that? This is a historic story, guys. Do you believe that? They have a tentative draft proposal arrangement, but not an agreement. And Sean Boynton of Global News has a message for anyone who doesn't think this is historic. Smarten up, you racists. There's a lot of lying going on. Here's David Lametti the Justice Minister for Trudeau. He's the one Trudeau brought in after he fired Jody Wilson-Raybould. Listen to Lametti talk on CTV with Evan Solomon this weekend. And he says the people that are throwing things at trains, they look like they're trying to derail a train or lighting fires, should be treated as terrorist acts and as terrorists. You're the Justice Minister. Is he right? Well, I, I think an act of stupidity, like, like getting in the way of a train or throwing a snowball off the train, which is exceptionally dangerous, puts your own life in danger far from an act of terrorism. There's a lot of hyperbole uh, that's being added, you know, fuel throwing onto the fire uh, by uh, various people. That's not going to help us get to a solution. Throwing snowballs, eh? Really? Hey guys, it's really stupid to throw snowballs at trains. This is what, this is what the Justice Minister calls throwing snowballs at trains. The entire country saw this video, or other videos like them. Uh, so did Lametti, of course. But he's telling you that he's willfully blind to this. So he's telling everyone in the government to do the same as him, including the RCMP, maybe, maybe even including the police and prosecutors for all the arsons and train derailments lately. I see another railway facility was torched. A man was arrested in Prince Rupert. We don't know his name at the moment. Do you think it was just random? How about all the recent derailments in the past few weeks? Random? Just by chance, maybe. 
You got yourself a fake justice minister. You got yourself a fake Indian affairs minister. You got fake news from the fake state broadcaster. But the biggest fake part, as I mentioned to you before, is this fake chief who calls himself Chief Woos. And that's not his name. His name is Frank Alec. Uh, here's his LinkedIn page. It uh, shows he's just a lifelong member of what I call the Indian industry. Bureaucrats and lawyers and politicians who live off the government, live off the system, off endless meetings and complaints and hearings. He's monetized the problems of his people. They've, you know, the industry, the Indian industry, has figured out how to make a living off the process itself, not to actually solve the problems on reserves, but to turn those problems into an industry. What a difference between him and, say, the former Indian chief, Ellis Ross, who was also recently interviewed by Evan Solomon. What would your message be for the, the leaders who are running these blockades in places like Quebec and Ontario and many people who are standing in solidarity with them? You're from the Heisler Nation. What would your message be to them? Well, if you really want to stand up for our rights, uh, watch, we did that job 15 years ago and we've been steadily increasing it. That's why we have so much success in communities like mine. And our ultimate goal was to get away from Indian Act funding. I mean, the rest of the Indian Act provisions don't even, aren't even relevant to us in today's day and age. It's only the dependency on the funding that's actually keeping us down. Rights and title has actually opened up a whole new world for us where we can actually bring in our own revenues, build our own apartments, build our own houses or soccer fields and everything else. And it's a great feeling, you know, to say at some point in our future, no, Ottawa, we don't need your Indian Act funding. Take it away. I think there's a real issue. If anything, this thing has done is shown us that the, the deep divisions in the Wet'suwet'en territory in the, among that nation are really at the heart of it. They haven't negotiated um, an understanding with BC and Canada on how they go forward. And look, it's not impossible. There are some 29 First Nations who are self-governing in Canada who have arrangements. All, all of them, I think all of them, have a combination of hereditary and elected chiefs who uh, work together and advance the nation's cause. So there, there is an issue there. They have to understand who speaks for them. And I think that's the thing that's bedeviled the government, the federal government, the BC government, and the rail companies and everybody for the last, going on four weeks. Yeah, that panel of white baby boomer liberal women in Ottawa were shocked by Ellis Ross saying that government intervention and government solutions were actually the problem. Letting Indians build pipelines and resources is the solution. That was Tonda McCharles of the Toronto Star there. She couldn't very well call Ellis Ross a racist, so she sort of white-splained to him that you would sue attain, you got to get your, you Aboriginal folks have to get your act together. Trudeau, you know, come on, Trudeau's got to do That was so embarrassing. The, the First Nations along the route are not of two minds. Only journalists who put a microphone in front of the fake chief think so, but no, 100% um, of the bands on the, on the route are in favor of the pipeline. That was a real Indian they were talking to there, Ellis Ross, not an Indian industry type Indian, not a grifter like Frank Alec. And here's why I call Frank Alec a grifter. That's Chief Woos, the one that Carolyn Bennett went with. Because until just last year, he wasn't a chief. He wasn't Chief Woos. He wasn't a hereditary chief. Let me read to you from the Globe and Mail itself which seems to have forgotten what they themselves published. Indigenous supporters of Coastal GasLink say majority of Wet'suwet'en members back project. That was their headline last June. Three prominent Indigenous women say a majority of Wet'suwet'en nation members are in favor 
of reaping economic benefits from a $6.2 billion pipeline project in British Columbia. The three women say they feel compelled to speak out after being ostracized by anti-pipeline protesters for supporting TC Energy Corp's coastal gas link. Teresa Tate Day, Darlene Glame, and Gloria George want to give voice to what they consider the silent majority, according to their affidavits, which were filed in BC Supreme Court as part of Coastal Gas Link's application to extend an injunction to ensure protesters don't revive an anti-pipeline blockade. I should tell you, Carolyn Bennett refused to meet with those women. Instead, she met with Frank Alec. But get this, House chief titles are held for life and after the death of the holder are passed to someone in the matrilineage, Miss George said, we are not stripped like bark off a tree. Hereditary House Chief Save Frank Alex took over the title of Woos at a ceremony in March 2, but Miss Glaim said many Matuatan members consider her to be the true Woos, the hereditary chief title for Grizzly House under the Gitdumnan clan. We are supposed to work together as people, Ms. Glaim said. I hope that our nation can come together to heal from this situation. So exactly one year ago today, Frank Alec, a man, obviously, just took over a lifetime hereditary title of chief. He took it from three women, even though the title passes from mother to daughter to granddaughter. That's what matrilineal means. He's a fake. He's an imposter. <laughs> So, of course, Trudeau's minister met with him instead of the three women who support the pipeline. Frank Alec is not a real elected chief under the Indian Act. And according to Wet'suwet'en tradition, he's not even a hereditary chief. He's, he's fake. And he works with the fake First Nations, the Wet'suwet'en office, which isn't an Indian band at all. In fact, it's bought and paid for with Tides Foundation money out of California. You can find this yourself on the internet. They, they boast about it. Fake, fake, fake. Fake chief, fake consultation, fake agreement, fake Indian man, fake news. Why all the lying? Stay with us for more on this. believe have uh, come uh, to a uh, proposed arrangement uh, that uh, that will uh, also honor the the protocols of the uh, of the Wasotan um, people and clans and uh, obviously that that what we've worked on this weekend needs to go back to those clans and then uh, we have we have uh, agreed that as ministers we will come back to sign um, in uh, if if it, it meet is agreed upon um, by by the nation. Holy moly! Do you understand what any of that means? I don't, and I've watched it three times now, and I've done my best to read what scant reporting there is. I've read. The statement, I've read statements from Coastal GasLink who say they're going to go ahead with the construction today. I have no idea what's going on. And joining me now to help try to make some sense of this is our friend Man Manny Montenegrino, who joins us now via Skype from Ottawa. Manny, great to see you again. Great to see you. Great to be with you, Ezra. Manny, uh, I spent some time in my monologue today distinguishing between an agreement 
and a proposed agreement. I guess in law, one would be called a contract, the other would be called an offer. It's all the difference in the world, isn't it? Until you have an agreement, you have literally nothing. Well, absolutely. And, and not only do you not have an agreement, you need to know what the previous document said, what we're, what we're moving from, what we're moving to. We don't know that either. Ezra, I'm, I'm like you. I'm lost as to, and I think Canadians, I, I share my frustration in that, what are we doing? Where are we going? And I, as I do with all your interviews, Ezra, I, I try to be informed, I try to research, I try to bring legal skills uh, to the questions at hand and try to provide some, some useful commentary. But I, I was stumped on this one. I mean, Ezra, as we know, there are 600 nations in Canada. Uh, the uh, Wet'suwet'en nation has 3,000 people. Mm -hmm. Now, of the 3,000, there are five chiefs that have been appointed or elected pursuant to the Indian Act or the legislation in Canada. But parallel to that, there are 13 hereditary chiefs. So within that 3,000 indigenous nation, there are five clans. And within those five clans, there are 13 houses, and these all have banned councils. I mean, I, I don't know, but the math seems to me that Everyone is serving on some type of council. Uh, there are only three, uh, uh, you know, adults, I would say. So how do you make sense when you have 13 houses or 13 hereditary chiefs going in one direction, five elected chiefs going in another direction, and a number of bank councils, each with committees, that are representing 3,000 people? This is an impossibility to get any, and especially if you don't have, as lawyers know, starry decisis or, or some precedence to go back and say, oh, no, here's where we were, here's where we're moving on to. It seems like we're creating everything, a concoction from the beginning uh, at every time. It's an impossibility. Huh. You know what? Thank you for that research. I think you're exactly right. Um, this Chief Woos, as he's calling himself, he took that hereditary title one year ago today from three women. Apparently, they held that title jointly. I, my reading suggests that that's a matrilineal title. So that means it goes from mother to daughter. Well, Frank Alec isn't a girl. I think it's so opaque, so muddy. And like you say, it's about the process. It's about endless objections and really it reminds me what I used to say about the Middle East peace process. Not a lot of peace, a lot of process though, a lot of diplomats, bureaucrats, lawyers, politicians meeting in five-star hotels to hammer out some meaningless piece of paper. The process itself soon became the point of it. I think what you have here is what has been called the Indian industry. Lawyers, politicians, bureaucrats, who love to meet endlessly because it gives them an income and a purpose, but nothing's getting done to actually lift these people out of the welfare economy into the work economy. Yeah, and we come, I mean, add to what I've said, and we come from four and a half years now of what appears to be the most um, informed government when it comes to uh, indigenous rights. We had the Trudeau government 
you know, apologizing to almost every First Nation, the Trudeau government accepting 94 recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Trudeau government with the with the Commission on Murder and Missing Aboriginal Women with all the recommendation, calling Canada a genocide. Well, I mean, how does how do we find ourselves? At the beginning, again, with this one nation of 3,000 people with 13 houses and 13 hereditary chiefs and five elected chiefs, and we're, it's almost like we just you know, fell out of, the, uh, out of a Martian probe and we fall onto this problem for the very first time. I thought we had done some substantial progress. There are, there are departments, there are payments, there are leases, there are monies being forwarded to taxpayers' money going to these. I don't believe that the, 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 this nation taxes its members and, and funds itself. I believe that comes from some form of reparation or some form of acknowledgement of past deals. So, so my, my, my fear uh, with this, and when you break it down, it comes down to one person who basically calls himself a, a hereditary chief. I mean, are we down to Canada requiring every individual, and I'm talking individual, yeah. a member of every First Nations approval in some form of writing that may or may not be binding? Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because... Uh, there was another Trudeau cabinet minister, um, uh, a, a friend of uh, Trudeau's. who Mark did, Miller. Mark Miller, thank you very much. I'm sorry, you just slipped my tongue. Yeah, no, that's fine. Who, who met in Ontario uh, with blockaders there. And from what I read, at least one of the people he met with not only wasn't a band counselor or chief, but he had actually been arrested uh, by... Mohawk police themselves for illegal drug dealing. So you had, thank you very much, I forgot Mark Miller's name was on the tip of my tongue before. He was sitting down and meeting for half a day with literally some guy. And Manny, I gotta tell you, if you or I stood in the middle of a railway line, we'd be arrested and if we didn't move, we'd be thrown in jail. <laughs> this one guy who happens to have uh, uh, you know, he, he's been arrested for illegal drug dealing by the local band itself. He gets a full day or eight hours, I think it was, right. with a cabinet minister. Right. I just don't get it. Well, and, and I guess they also are demanding that the prime minister himself must meet with every person that demands a meeting. I mean, this is absurd. I mean, under Canadian law, we've, we, we have advanced our society where the cities in Canada can be overlooked by the province. There's no jurisdiction, sorry, by the federal government. The federal government has no legal obligation to even acknowledge the existence of cities. They, they are creatures of the provinces. They don't exist. And, and so here we have many, a million people in Ottawa that don't necessarily get the representation of federal government with millions in Toronto, but yet we're down to the minutia of every 600 nations, Ezra, 600 nations. And if all we need is one, we need to have the approval of each one, whether they are represented or not, or whether they claim to be or not. This is, this is going to send investment. This is going to send everything out of Canada, and we are going to be in deep trouble. And not and, and look, I'm a resolution type of guy. I would love to see things resolved, but you can't resolve it if everyone gets to set his new goalposts the way they see it. 
And yeah. it, this is this is just absurd in 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 its totality. So I, I I don't I see it getting worse. I thought after creating two ministries, after going through an exhaustive Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the exhaustive Murdered Missing uh, Aboriginal and uh, Commission, I thought after all that work that we have moved the yardstick, and now I find out we're at square one on the demands. We're right at the beginning again, uh, and billions of dollars are flowing. So so from a person who likes to solve problems, I, you know, how do you solve a problem if all the goalposts keep changing? Yeah, you know, I've seen a number of pieces written by liberal, white, Toronto-centric journalists saying how uh, they're worried that this will create a spike in racism, people reacting to these blockades. And I think they're trying to do something else with that commentary, Manny. I think they're trying to call anyone who's upset with these blockades sure. racist. They're trying to scare people away from talking about it. Uh, of course, many of the proponents of these deals are Aboriginal. Like I say, 20 out of 20 uh, groups along this pipeline support it. But I have to say, in a way, they're right. Because there's so much goodwill in Canada, in mainstream society, towards Aboriginal bands, towards past conduct, past atrocities even, or past legal inequalities, that I think there is, is to this day, such goodwill towards Aboriginal people. And I prove it by showing the amount of money we spend and having ministers and ministries and I think that these blockades and the fact that Trudeau is allowing them to be hijacked by rogue elements, that's who I would call this fake chief woos, this Frank Alec. I think that's burning up the goodwill. And I think I'm very afraid to say it. These rogue, intransigent, and sometimes eco-terrorist um, ragamuffins are burning up all this goodwill towards real Aboriginal people. That's, I think, in a way, this will cause racism because you have people speaking falsely in the name of all Indians, in the name of all Indian bands, while breaking the law. I think they are burning up goodwill towards Aboriginal people, just like fake illegal immigrants burn up goodwill towards legitimate immigrants. That's my idea. What do you think of that, Manny? Yeah, and I, I think there's some truth to that, but I, but, but I also think even if you if you set aside all the bad players uh, that you've identified in the, in this, even the good players are not what I would call orchestrated as to, and with some form of finality of what they want. I mean, even the good players, what is the issue that we need to resolve? I mean, it is, and and what's what's upsetting. And, and this is, you know, everyone is equal, Ezra. Everyone is equal. All nations and all people are equal. Start with that. There are good in every nation and there are bad in every nation. But for some reason or another, the assumption is that the, the, the bona fides of every indigenous person is, is, is without reproach. It is superb, excellent at its best. And the bona fides of every government that deals with indigenous is is black, bad, and, and, and not good. And I don't know why we are that. I don't know why we accept that. That 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 we had Chief Spence, we, we and this was during Harper's administration, who committed 
I think her her bank committed some financial fraud, mm-hmm. and 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 she was outed, and 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 they were, the auditors went in and saw fraud. Mm-hmm. Yet even at the at the finding of fraud, her bona fides were so great that then opposition Justin Trudeau ran and met with her and sat with her to 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 you know air and support her grievance her hunger strike well he set the precedent i mean prime minister harper said well wait a minute we're not going to at least deal with people who commit fraud on their people and on their indigenous people and on the canadians we can't say that they have bona fides but prime minister Trudeau, or then opposition leader Trudeau, ran there and met with him. Why wouldn't every indigenous person, whether whether acting in, with great bona fides uh, or what you call the, the that group that isn't, demand a meeting for Trudeau? He set the bar that low. They they are beyond reproach. And this is where we come to this great confusion where it, we don't even ask the bona fides. I'm, I understand, and you could do some research, that some of these nations are receiving foreign funds, foreign yeah. U.S. funds to fund them. The media doesn't even ask, well, wait a minute, do they have a conflict of interest? Are they acting in good faith when they're negotiating with the government of Canada? We're not even allowed to know that. We're not even allowed to ask that question. So yeah. it is, it well, is our beyond. own Kian Bexley did some research. Yes. There's something called the um, uh, Wet'suwet'en Treaty Office. It's a corporation. It's not an Indian band, and it receives money. It, it, you can find their financials right online. They boast that they receive money from the Tides Foundation. They're a corporation, gets foreign funding, and they're not a democratically legitimate institution. They're not a town. They're not an Indian band. It's, it's a company. And right. what, what drives me nuts, Manny, is that all this effort is being made by Trudeau. He's sending ministers. The B.C. government's sending a minister. Coastal Gaslink is doing things. But they're not actually meeting with the legitimate Indian bands. So if you're, uh, you told us about all the different bands and chiefs, and it's a little complicated, but if you're an Indian in the Wet'suwet'en area, and you're following the rules and following the Indian Act and doing things the right way and signing agreements with the pipeline company, and then Trudeau's team comes to town and won't even meet with you, they'll meet with the rogue unelected elements, why should you follow the rules anymore? You're not getting ahead by following the rules. Why should a pipeline company follow the rules if the rules mean nothing? I'm afraid that, that this will just further cement the chaos and anarchy reputation that Canada's getting. And absolutely. And, uh, but it's, it's so, the bigger picture, Ezra, we talked about it, is all the pipelines. It's really, this is, I don't know if this is, this is a canary in the coal, uh, coal mine, but the big pipelines, which are, which are now, uh, being, being, you know, stopped, set back, uh, uh, destroyed and not proceeded with. But if you think about it, Ezra, there is the, the price differential that Canada gets on its oil that it can only sell to America because it can't sell it to any other country in the world, is $25 billion. Now, Ezra, I'm going to put it to you. You're an American. You're an American conglomerate, a bunch of companies that are buying Canadian oil, and you're getting a $25 billion discount. Would you spend a few million or even up to a billion to to create chaos, see 
seed division in Canada and to make sure our oil industry never survives while U.S. becomes the number one leader in oil production and oil sales and is an exporter. I mean, it's so it's so sad to see that they are pouring money into Canada. And through these indigenous uh, First Nations that we're not even allowed to ask questions about, yeah. you know, it, it reminds me. I mean, this is absurd because, yeah. you know, you can do it with impunity. You can give money. American companies can give money to First Nations band and no one will ask a question and say, what are their bona fides? Are they acting in good faith? Yeah, and they can launder that money. The Tides Foundation in San Francisco and Tides Canada in in Vancouver, uh, which was started off as a branch plant of the San Francisco operation, they specialize in what they call donor-directed giving, which is a fancy way of saying money laundering, as in <laughs> someone can donate money to, the, the, the term the Canada Revenue Agency uses is a conduit. So someone gives money to the Tides Foundation in San Francisco. Their identity is kept secret. And the Tides Foundation gives it to whom the original donor directed that dark money. In return, right. Tides gets a commission, I don't know, 5 or 10%. So that money that's pouring into the Wet'suwet'en Treaty Office, that fake corporation, or any of these other bands that take Tides money, it could come from an American competitor, it could come from an ideologue like George Soros, or it could come, frankly, from... A foreign competitor, OPEC, you know, uh, this coastal gas link pipeline, Manny, it's natural gas. That's the gas link right. part of it. Right. So it's who are the biggest uh, reserves in the world for natural gas? Russia, Iran, and Qatar. Those are the top three countries for natural gas. Now, the United States and Australia are really coming on board with their fracked natural gas. So who wants to stop Canadian right. natural gas from going to Asian markets? Well, I just listed you five countries, and we're talking about billions of dollars a day in this market. I mean, the world demand for oil is 100 million barrels a day. So if the price yeah. is, let's just say, 50 bucks for argument, that's $5 billion a day yeah, at stake. So shutting down Canada for a billion, for $2 billion, is the best investment these competitors will ever make. Absolutely. And, and, and we are just jumping on it. We're saying, fine, let's do this. And we're using, you know, the plight of people's lives in order to help foreign oil and gas companies. I, it, it, it breaks my heart to see that after all this focus, we still have indigenous people, nations that don't have clean water, yeah. but there are billions pouring in and much, much more coming into the, uh, to the uh, various bands. So, um, I, you know, I, I like to problem solve and I can't believe in 2020 from what I've heard and read we're back to square one, it seems, yeah. with at least this one nation. And believe me, if that's the truth of this one nation, I, you know, the Mohawks in Ontario and, 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 and the rest of the nations are going to sit there and say, what a precedent we have. Yeah. Let's start from square one and let's renegotiate. Yeah, it looks like we have 600 vetoes, one for every First Nation, <laughs> and then every rogue breakaway branch uh, of those 600 gets a veto right. too. I am worried that actual Aboriginal entrepreneurs will be set back here. And that's, 
that's a shame. Of course, our whole country is being set back. Manny, it's great to catch up with you great. and to Thank go through you. this. Thank you, my friend. No problem, Ezra. Take care. All right. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my show uh, on Friday from CPAC in Washington, D.C. Mike writes, a rebel organized Canadian CPAC. What a great idea. Have it near Ottawa in the late spring, early autumn in a big tent. I like that idea. Um, I think, though, a lot of conservative big shots would be scared away by the media party um, in a way that they're not scared off from CPAC. CPAC had a whole spectrum of conservatives. Um, Social conservatives, fiscal conservatives, nationalist conservatives, open borders conservatives, if that's such a thing. Everyone felt comfortable to go there, and the media weren't really trying to pick off people and say, do you mean to say you're going to a conservative event with him and him? In Canada, uh, the media party would tear to shreds most conservative leaders who attended such an event and scare them off. Um, that's sort of what they do in Canada. So I wonder if our Canadian political leadership would have the courage to come to a Canadian CPAC. Grassroots people would, but I wonder what speakers would. Millie writes, Canadians need to take a page from the Americans and not let the left bully us into feeling ashamed to be conservative. Exactly right, and I think the big difference is in the United States they have a guy who loves to fight back against the media. His name is Donald Trump. And even though the media is overwhelmingly against him, he's such a brawler. He's that straight fighter from New York. He can take them all on, and the crowd cheers with him. I don't know if we have a person like that in Canada in elected office. What can Canada learn from CPAC? Devin writes, maybe don't kick out popular conservative figures like Gavin McInnes. Well, Gavin's being kicked out of a lot of places. They did kick him out of CPAC. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly why. I saw Gavin when he was down there, and, and he seemed to enjoy it, but I don't know the whole story there. But Gavin is an example of someone who is being deplatformed, and I think that's the number one threat to conservatives these days, censorship and deplatforming. And in Canada, the chief prosecutors of censorship and deplatforming are, ironically, the media themselves. That's our show for today. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, for you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.